Well, a couple of weeks ago, I read one of the brothers' creative Facebook posts. Uh, it had the title, How Social Media Works. I kind of like this one. And it starts with my post. I prefer mangoes to oranges. And then a random person's response. So basically, what you're saying is you hate oranges. You also failed to mention pineapples and bananas and grapefruits. Educate yourself. Well, I don't know whether to chuckle or groan, because that's how a lot of people are these days. Can't say anything or not say anything, you're still judged. I thought we were living in the tolerant age. Ironically, many, many folks are anything but tolerant. Society's liberal leaders, in particular, meaning academia, big media and big business, yes, Hollywood, and of course, it always enters into politics, they judge quickly and condemn, condemn us, our conservative values, our family and biblical kind of values, traditional values. They do it swiftly and they do it with almost a godlike confidence. They know exactly what's right and wrong and what is wrong with us. Their incessant pressure on each of us as Christians to be pressed into the mold of, to conform to their worldview, I think is one of the ugliest, yes, and I would add unjust features of living here in the 21st century. Judging the wrong way surrounds us every which way we turn. Didn't used to be this way. At least it didn't used to be this blatant. Um, at least in the past, people tried to hide their biases. Well, those days are gone, it seems. What are we supposed to do in that kind of an environment? Well, on my part, I have a command from God as a shepherd. Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 really requires all pastors to refute those who speak words that contradict the Christian faith. We uh, need to expose false teaching no matter where it arises from. Sometimes it comes from the cult down the street, but other times false teaching comes from the world itself, from people that might consider themselves secular, but their message is very much religious and has very much to do with philosophical things that contradict what the Bible teaches. And that's why in our day we have to use razor-sharp discernment, as Pastor Shirley pointed out uh, before. So we have a critical need to learn to judge rightly so that we don't overreact. And we also have discernment to be able to see what's happening around us and call it what it is. When it goes too far and it becomes false teaching, that becomes part of what the church has to speak about. And so um, our thesis or our proposition in this sermon series that's been stretched out a little bit because of all of the other folks that we've had coming here to the pulpit is simply this. Righteous judging is God's way of judging. If you're trying to figure out how do I judge properly, we imitate God. In that sense, really nothing has changed. We just need to learn what he does. So we're looking and studying at the way he judges now, this is kind of the second half of our series, 
And we started looking at five characteristics of God's judgments. Five characteristics of God's judgments. That's kind of our outline. The first we already covered, and that's maybe stating the obvious, but I think it needs to be stated, and that is that God's judgments are good. We can imitate His judgments because they're good. They're righteous. If you want to know what righteousness is, it's the same thing as justice. Look at God. God will show you what true justice is. Look at the way He judges. God must be followed. God must be trusted. God's way of speaking and judging, thinking, it's all the best. And if we just follow him, we won't get confused. There's Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. There's Psalm 37 verse 28. And dozens and dozens of verses that declare emphatically again and again, God is righteous. God is a just judge. We even looked at Revelation 19 when Jesus returns on the white horse and he brings his judgment into the world, and we realized, wow, it won't be until God actually executes judgment in the fullest extent that we will finally get in this planet to paradise. There will be God's judgment. It'll be harsh and severe. It'll be against the nations. Christ will execute it, and it'll have all the attributes of God's justice in it, and the result will be the removal of the wicked and the establishment of paradise on earth. So we long for his judgments because they're good. We realize we'll never get where we want to get as a society until God exercises his judgment. That is central to our faith. That is what we look for. We don't look for some champion to arise and be able to get everything right. It's just not going to happen. And if he did temporarily, someone else would mess it up anyway. Or we would mess it up by our voting and our democracy. But it's all going to be changed when Christ comes back. So that's his judgment. It's good. The second characteristic that we looked at also by way of review is that God judges based on his law. Now, we're not typically people that go to the Old Testament and start studying all of the laws. As you read the law of God, you realize that many of them were case law or case situations. In this case, if so-and-so does this with an animal and he belonged to so-and-so and such-and-such happened, then this is what you're supposed to do. That's called case law. And it's really the application of principles of justice and mercy and other attributes of God. And they're put into cases so that you'd be able to think through each situation properly. We look at the broader moral aspects of God's law. We look at the Ten Commandments. We look at the two greatest commandments of love. And from that, we glean a lot of understanding about God's mind and how he looks at the ethics in the world. He looks at righteous behavior. He looks at what ought to be. And then we see what he declares, and then we, we learn what that means for ourselves, and we, we can practice that. We go back to the law of God. God does not use the latest poll. He doesn't care what we collectively think is right or wrong. He already knows, and he's the one that forms our conscience. He's the one that wrote his word. He's the one that gave his law on Mount Sinai. He knows. And so uh, God is going to measure your life, my life, everybody's life, right up against his law. And by the way, who's the only one that lived the law of God perfectly? His name is what? Jesus Christ. He embodied the law. He embodied righteousness. He could say, I always do the will of my Father. We cannot say that. He was sinless, despite all the silly movies that come out of Hollywood trying to say that he struggled with this sin or that sin. It's just not true. They haven't read the eyewitness accounts. Even Paul, who showed all the weaknesses of the law to save us, still wrote in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 
Then we ask, where does law, God's law come from? And we, we saw that God didn't go out somewhere and find some law and said, you know, this is a good law. I think I'll use this. He got the law from himself, from his own character. He knows how he is. He's always righteous and just. And so the writing of that law really comes from who he is. He never changes. And so his law never changes. His law is unchanging and his law is universal. And so morals can never be relative because God is universal and God is unchanging and the law comes from him. So they could never be relative. You listen to these people and they try to express that ethics and morals are relative, but they have to say something that sounds very absolute in order to say that, don't they? You know, all of morals are relative. And you're like, that sounds like an absolute statement. It was. Well, then... How can you say something absolute that if there's nothing absolute? And so they really struggle with the fact that they can't even logically affirm what they're trying to affirm. And so at least here we have logic and scripture agreeing and we can go forward with confidence knowing that, yep, I know it's right or wrong. It backs up to the law of God, God's character, and it doesn't change. I love Psalm 7. This is kind of where we ended last time, where David is pleading to God for justice in his own life. Here are all these liars and slanders, and he's praying that God will take care of them, and he appeals to God. Really, you might say Psalm 7 is a heart cry for justice, and he cries out to God, and he calls God in that psalm the Sadiq Shafat, the one who judges rightly. I mean, in the end, when everybody is not judging rightly. You have to have someone to appeal to, someone you know you can trust that's going to understand all the situation and, and finally get it right. And that's where we, we find peace because we back up to God and we say, ah, he's the one who judges rightly. It's interesting that it even says that about the Lord Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2 and it says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he was suffering, he uttered no threats. What did he do? He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. It's Jesus. Well, how do we apply this second truth? We didn't get to that last time. So we'll pick up on that. Here we are in society and we could think about the big issues going on in society or we could think about the church or frankly the small everyday issues that happen in our homes. Well, one thing is when we're speaking up in society, we're up on social media or in the workplace or whatever platform the Lord may be pleased to give you, we should always speak up for the standards of God's law. Never apologize for what God's law says. It's not good enough to say that you stand for justice or righteousness. That's what everybody said. You have to define justice God's way, and that means you have to interpret scriptures correctly. And all you are doing, if all you were doing, is joining the world and joining their moral outrage with a wrongly defined kind of justice, that's not speaking up for God. That's not even courageous. Courage is shown when you correct the world's misguided notions of justice, and then you receive scorn. It does not matter if they speak part of the truth. Please remember that the very best false teachings and the very most effective lies are the ones that part of it is true. And it grabs a hold of you and you're like, well, that part's true. And then they lead you into something that's not true. And that's the whole point of the lie, is to take something that is based in truth, but skew it and twist it so that now you're off and looking at it in not a way that God looks at. It. That's why it takes discernment, because not everything that false teachers or the world says is wrong. 
but we have to know what is. You know, Satan is very good at imitation, and he has his imitation for everything that we talk about here in church. We talk about hope in church. Well, Satan has a false hope, and eventually it's going to disappoint, disappoint people. We talk about love. Well, Satan has a kind of a tolerance out there in the world that I guess they call love and acceptance, but it's not the biblical concept of love. Same thing with justice. It can be skewed. Socialism is not biblical justice. It's a big topic that's out there now, and I think some people latch hold of that, and I think that's a really neat idea. If all of us could have exactly the same kind of an outcome and the same kind of a, uh, a job and the same kind of a pay, same of this and same of that, wouldn't that be a wonderful world? Well, no, it would not. That's not the world that God has designed here. Socialism is the growing belief in our country that everyone is owed the same lifestyle. Everyone is owed not just the same opportunities, but the same the same outcome in life. And if they don't get it, then it's government's job to make sure everybody gets it. That's socialism. Some will even go and specify what does that include? What must I have? What is my right to have? And it's a growing list, is it not? It used to be just a couple of things. Now it's health insurance, it's your pay, your job, your education, maybe even your own cell phone, the same cell phone eventually. Where in God's law, or even in the church's teachings, does it ever say that God has promised everybody the same standard of living or that the church should guarantee that? Come on in. How much do you make? How much do you make? All right, give half of yours to him. There's, not, there's no rule like that in church. Did you know that even when we get to heaven, which is a perfect society and paradise, we're not all going to be rewarded equally? God is going to reward those who worked very hard for him by faith, and with humility, he's going to reward them greater than others. And that's a good thing to do. And we all have to take personal responsibility for how we live and not blame others for our disadvantages in life. Turn a moment, if you're still in the Gospel of John, turn to the Gospel of Luke. And we're not really going to spend a lot of time on this, but turn to Luke chapter 12. And I'll just show you a little snippet of something that happened where someone really wanted the Lord Jesus to sort of impose socialism, at least on their family, or maybe not socialism, but at least equality as he defined it. Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. It's interesting. Here, Jesus is warning of a false concept of justice. And in verse 13, it's just he's just walking by, and someone in the crowd, it says, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Well, that sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, you could see us in school saying that, hey, he got the whole thing. Tell him to give me half of it. And that's kind of how we think, right? Tell him to divide the inheritance with me. He didn't even ask for the whole thing. He said, just tell my brother to divide it. That's reasonable. Look how Jesus responds, though. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? I, I don't really want any part of this. This is not my job, in other words. And then he said to them, meaning his disciples, beware, be on your guard against every form of what? Greed. Interesting that when people demand what they think is fair, what they think is just, what they ought to get, Jesus turned it to a problem in the heart and said the problem is greed. And of course, the Bible warns a lot about the things that we think we ought to get. But Jesus refused to equalize that inheritance, the outcome. And he warned about greedy men. In fact, he goes on to warn about the man that wanted to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. And again, greed was the problem. 
Well, this false idea of justice says that the problem is with society. Now, what do we say the problem? Where's the problem? What do we as believers say? The problem is not necessarily in society. The root problem is found in our own hearts. It's found in my heart, your heart. I'm not, I'm not a righteous enough person. I'm not a humble enough person. I'm not a loving enough person. And so if you take that and project that out and each one of us are like that, then the problem is inside of us. That's why God's solutions are real solutions because they deal with the real problem. The problem is each one of us as people is messed up. It's not so much society. Of course, if, if all of us are messed up, then society is going to be messed up. But the, you don't fix society. You can't change the human heart by fixing society. You have to go after the human heart and change that. In the world, the villain is the rich people. They're the villain because they have so much, you see, and so they must be wrong. And if they just would do this or do that, then everything would be fine in society. Well, no, it would not, first of all, because then those that were poor, they get rich, they would, they would think the same way as the rich because the human heart is still the same. Sorry, but that's true. The hero is not the poor man on the street. That's, that's socialism, that the poor are good, the rich are bad, and therefore, rich, give up all of your money, give it to the poor, and society will be fine. That's the solution of socialism. It doesn't go deep enough, and it's not even true. You know, in our society, so many of the what are called the one percenters, you've heard that, I'm sure, they're vilified. Well, some of them probably deserve the scorn. Many of them are, I'm sure, selfish people and need to learn to be born again and to share and be generous. But all of them? They're scorned simply because they have money. What about the ones that were very wise in the way they invested money and they worked very hard at it or their parents did? Was that wrong? If those who speak up for this kind of justice really believed in that kind of justice, wouldn't they start with themselves? Wouldn't athletes who make $2 million see the athlete that makes only 100000 and say, I'll split it with you. I'll give you my salary because we all should get the same outcome. But they don't do that, do they? Well, what about the guy that gets straight A's on the college campus and he believes so strongly in socialism? Does he share his A's with a guy that gets C's so that everybody can get nice B's? Wouldn't that be fair? Wouldn't that be equal? Why don't they do that? Because they don't really believe that. Because they know they worked hard for those A's and they deserve those A's. Well, at least we hope they did, right? And that, of course, would discourage study. It would discourage being the better athlete. And yes, in the realm of business, it would discourage careful decision-making, careful investment, hard work, entrepreneurship. And so that's why God's word doesn't say that's justice. That's not justice. That's the false world's way of justice. You know, it sounds absurd when we say share your A's with the ones that have C's, but that is the very idea. And we all know that that's not God's law. God doesn't say it that way. That's not what he means by justice. All right, today we move on to the third way that God judges rightly, and that is that God judges based on facts. God's justice is always going to be based on what's actually true and can be confirmed by facts. Another way of writing that is that he judges us based on our actions. Um, our actions, in a very real sense, define us, do they not? When um, in James, James is correcting a false, uh, a false confession of faith, uh, where someone says that they have faith, James writes, what good is it if a man says he has faith, faith in Jesus, and yet he has no what? 
works, can that kind of faith save him? And the answer is no. What if a brother or sister is without clothing or in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go and peace be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body? What use is that, James writes? Even so, faith without works is dead, being by itself. Then he goes on to talk about Abraham and Rahab, that they were justified by works, meaning not that their works made them good enough in God's sight, but their works demonstrated their what? Their faith, that their faith was real. And that's why we know they're saved. And that's why Jesus could say something that sounds like work salvation in John 20. He said, those that have done the good deeds will be raised to a resurrection of life. And those who have done the bad deeds will be raised to a resurrection of damnation. How could he say that? Because if you really have faith, you're going to have works that follow. And if you're unsaved, the way you live is going to demonstrate that. When God makes his judgment on us, he will base it on action. We could go to Job chapter 1 and verse 8. And God is uh, speaking of Job, and he says, he considered Job. He was really happy with Job's life, and he said, you know, he's blameless, and he's an upright man. He fears God, and he turns away from evil. Actions. In Numbers 32, 13, God was not so happy with a group of people there. And he said, those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord, it says the Lord's anger burned against them. Actions. He judged them based on their actions. They were supposed to go into the land of promise and trust him to get in there. And they said, we, don't, we just don't believe God's going to fight for us. We want to go back to Egypt. And God got angry with them. In that case, lack of action. They didn't go in. Let me ask you, when was Adam kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Before or after he ate the forbidden fruit? Easy questions. Don't you love them? <laughs> after he ate, of course, action. You say, well, what was going on in his mind right before he bit? Doesn't matter. He bit. He ate, he broke the commandment, he died. And that's why we die, by the way. Matthew 25, 34, Jesus is going to return. He's going to judge the nations. He separates the sheep from the goats. And then he says, I'm going to judge them based on actions. If you visited me in prison, if you fed me when I was hungry, if you put clothes on me, and he meant by that the believers in Jesus Christ during that dreadful seven-year tribulation time, if you saw them in the nations and they were in need and you took care of them, that shows you had faith in me and were waiting my coming in my kingdom and I will treat you well in the judgment. Action. Let's turn to Revelation, the very last judgment of God, Revelation chapter 20. If I can just show you this. Here we are at the great white throne judgment in verse 12. Verses 11 and 12, but let's go to verse 12. Revelation 20 and verse 12. This is the final judgment, guys. This is it. There's no lawyer that these guys get. There's no appeal that these guys get. They're not going to get a parole. After this great white throne judgment, which is meant for unbelievers, they're thrown into the lake of fire, and there's no exit from that. And there's no final appeal. There's no lawyer. There's no, no judge that they can bribe and pay off. And you come to verse 12 and it says, I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to what? Their deeds, their actions. God's judgments are always based on actions. There it is. The camera's been rolling through your whole life. There you are doing such and such or not doing such and such. I, I like to think of the angels scribbling quickly, you know, writing it all down. 
Maybe they got really good cameras. It's all the time it's going. There'll be no mistaking at every single angle. All recorded. Men are going to have no excuse. One sin keeps you out of heaven, folks. One. That's why you need Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a scary thing to think about the great white throne judgment. Nobody will avoid it. We as believers avoid it because we're in Jesus Christ. He's already taken the judgment for us on the cross. Hey, that's what we just sang about, right? God does not base his judgments on whims or feelings or opinions or what's trending or bribes, but on action. And since a man's actions define him, to treat a man righteously based on God's law, facts have to be established. Now let's look at our judgment because we're trying to imitate God. We have to base our judgments on others, on actions, facts. We have to conclude facts. We have to. I think one of the problems with forming our opinions about other people, particularly through the news or secondhand information from a friend or whatever, is that you have to know if the news is passed on to you, not just some facts, but all of the relevant facts, right? You ever sit there critically and wonder, well, what are they not telling me? If not really your opinion has been manipulated and you think you're really well read because you're listening to the news. Every morning I read the news. Yeah, but do you get the different angles on the news? Most of the news really is not news. I mean, folks in the news will even admit it. They sit around there back room conference rooms and they figure out what it is they want to emphasize in the news, what they want to close up of, how much time they're going to give to that, the kind of messages they want to come forth. And it appeals to people that they think are watching their news and it pays their bills. And that's what you're getting. And you have to be more discerning to just that. Most of the news is not the news. We have to be careful. We have to be careful even when it's someone we trust and it's close to us and they come with information about something. It's not that we want to call them a liar. We just know how quick and easy it is for us to pass on information that's not complete enough. Would you agree with that? That we just haven't really researched it. We think it's probably true, but we use that and we tell somebody else and that person trusts you and now they're off forming their judgment on that. We have to be careful with that. Held to God's high standard of establishing facts, most judging on social media is probably faulty. God's law requires judgment of others to be based on facts. That's why it's very important that a person, really any person, never be treated as guilty merely because someone or some group of people accuse him or her of doing something wrong. Nowadays, it seems that if you're accused, then we know you're guilty. Well, that is just so wrong. An accusation is only an accusation. The person making the accusation could be the one in the wrong. The news has done such a number on our society that it seems just an accusation makes something true. We're like, oh, did you hear? Oh, I know it's only alleged. But 90% of you believes it's true already. When we play the game of Clue, it's kind of fun to make accusations, isn't it? I think it was Professor Plum, you know, in the library with the rope. And if you're wrong, so what? It's just a game. In real life, it's not a game. It tears down people's reputation. And so you see the number of lawsuits against the media that's coming out because it was spread everywhere and so much time was given to it. And they might have said in fine print, we don't know it's true, but it sounded so true to everyone. Everyone's talking about it. There's their face. And everyone thinks this guy's a villain. 
Well, it may prove that he is a villain, and he should get it if he is. <laughs> but how do we know based upon that so quickly? We read John 7, 51. Our law does not judge a man unless it first, first hears from him and knows what he is doing. Facts. Action. Nicodemus got it right. Our law never told us when we're imitating God and his judgments, never told us to make judgments about other people without hearing them. Imagine that. Good for Nicodemus. He spoke up there. Well, how do you get facts? Well, they're confirmed by witnesses. I'd like you to turn back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy chapter 19, and you'll see something that really is, is throughout the law of God. But this verse... This chapter and verse, I think, really nail it on the head. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. And it talks about the laws of testimony here. Deuteronomy 19, 15. And it says this. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Notice God's clear command here. One witness cannot serve justice. No matter how confident that witness may be, no matter how eloquent or observant that witness may claim to be, one person alone is never to be considered adequate to render a just judgment against another person. Two witnesses are needed, better yet, to have three. Please notice again, not two or three people not two or three accusers, not two or three disgruntled people, not two or three anonymous sources, not two or three people aligned with a political party intent on smearing someone's name who's running for office, but two or three credible witnesses who have not consulted with each other to align their story and have no interest in the outcome or in telling a lie. That means they have to have firsthand knowledge about the facts of the case. This need for witnesses is reinforced in other portions of God's word. We won't turn there. You can write these references down if you want. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. There it is again. In church discipline, Jesus affirmed this need after step number one in church discipline in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16. He said, but if he, that's the guy who confronts his brother with a sin, step number one, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more, so that it would equal two or three, take them with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Even in church judgment, facts have to be confirmed and they need two or three witnesses. Please don't come to the elders when you alone have seen something. Work out the steps of discipline properly. Only should come to the elders when the two or three witnesses have been rejected. And then it's kind of at that stage number three. And again, this, this is true no matter who it is in the church. Even church leaders should be treated this way. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That's 1 Timothy 5, 19. God's justice... God's way of judgment demands facts be established. And you can't get the facts without independent, credible witnesses in the plural. And to bring this to the heart of society's current debate, 
not to allow a person to speak on his own defense, whether the man, it's the man on the street and people rush to judgment about him. What was he doing out at one in the morning? Well, you don't know. Don't judge him that way. Um, or it's the police officer himself. Wait for the facts. We should not be the judge and the jury. It's, it's almost like what we've become is we're like the judge in the courtroom and we call everyone in the courtroom and we allow a few days to go by and, and the uh, prosecution has been allowed to stand and they've been allowed to make their accusations, you know, for like three days going on and on and on with what they have. And then the judge says, you know, it's time for a recess. And we go off for a recess and everybody comes back and he says, you know, I've already decided the case. I'm not going to give the defense a chance to say anything. Boom, there's my gavel. The guy's guilty. Imagine yourself sitting there. You hired lawyers to defend you and they're not even given a chance to speak. That's almost how it's become in society. That is so far away from God's justice, it's laughable. This goes for video evidence as well. I think the video camera is a great invention. I'm actually glad there's a lot of video cameras out there. People in power tend to abuse their power. And having extra cameras out there and extra eyes and extra proof certainly holds them accountable. And when they get caught, I'm all for that. I think that's great. Um, cameras catch politicians in embarrassing situations, do they not? And if a police officer is abusing their power and a camera catches them with that, I say they deserve it. God himself has, as we've already seen, some kind of eternal camera aimed on us. But it has a lot of different angles to it, guys. Not even video cameras must be taken as the absolute proof. Because not everything is as it first appears. Would you agree? Unless you know what happened before the video began, unless you heard everything that was said on the video that might have been muffled at certain points, or you have another camera angle, the video might not be enough in every situation. What do righteous people do in that situation? We imitate God. What would God have us to do? We don't conclude anything based on one video. Well, we, you, you, you might want to share your gut. Maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe it's best just not to conclude anything. You and I are just not the experts. Why do we have to give our opinion on everything that we don't actually know something about? Why are we pressured to do that? You know, as a pastor, I've been pressured to do that. What do you think about such and such? And my answer is, I don't know enough. Why are you asking me? They want the pastor to say something on their side. <laughs> but I don't know enough. I wasn't there. Even with video cameras, we really have to take care Again, what Jesus said in John 7, do not judge according to appearance. Sometimes things look really bad for somebody at first, but then they get a chance to explain everything that happened. And, well, you might not change your mind. You might still think they acted wrongly, but it might, there might be mitigating factors there about their behavior. But look at what's happening today. One video comes out, people start debating as if they were there. They start a protest. They tweet a condemnation. They boycott a game. They call for someone to be removed from office. Wow. How could you know so much? I'm just not that smart. Ironically, it really reveals that there are a lot of unrighteous judges out there just waiting to give their judgment. They're ready to pounce on anyone and not give them a fair trial. Do you know what that is called? That's called prejudice. 
The rush to judgment to make people fit a narrative they want told is a manipulation of justice. What's worse is that when the evidence that might actually help the person accused finally comes out, it certainly doesn't come out on page number one, it gets buried. And instead of talking about it 30 minutes on the nightly news, it might come on for a few seconds early in the morning. That's not fair. Listen, for justice to prevail, and frankly, for us all to have confidence in a system of justice, there have to be level heads that prevail. The Me Too movement we've heard a lot about also is caught up in this broader issue of justice. Must we believe a woman in a, a sexual situation where there's a charge of guilt against a man? Do we instantly believe a woman merely because of the accusation? Well, God's law has something to say about that too. In Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 24, it deals with case law. And admittedly, this is in a certain cultural context and it is a case situation. In that case, a woman is somewhere out in the field. Maybe she's doing some kind of work. Evidently, some uh, man uh, knew her routines and was going to take advantage of that and pushed himself against her. But her, she still had a responsibility. Her one responsibility in that case situation was that she cry out. If she didn't cry out, those judges who are supposed to try to figure out what happened doesn't know whether she was seductive and then falsely accused or whether or not the man could not control himself and was evil. And that's what judges have to do. They have to base it on facts. So each person had responsibilities. And so no one is to believe, be believed because they're male or because they are female. It always comes back to facts and credible witnesses. Every, not every witness is to be believed, but only those that are credible. On a personal level, I would say the need for gathering facts first should cause all of us to be extremely care, take extreme care with gossip. What is gossip? Gossip is when people pass on negative information about somebody else in the church or elsewhere, and they didn't need to pass on that information. They're not part of the solution to that. They're not even sure that it's true, and in many cases, they may even have negative views of the person. Um, things are rarely the way the first person makes someone else to sound. You remember the proverb that gives us wisdom in chapter 18 of Proverbs. It says the first to plead his case seems just, seems right, until another comes and examines him. First person, first one might say, yep, you know, such and such happened and everything that they're saying sounds good until you ask a few tough questions. And you ask the tough questions and the person starts to admit, well, I don't really know that and I didn't really hear that. And I'm not really sure about that. Okay, okay, well, then you should not have presented that information to me because it really made that other person look bad, you see. How many friendships have been lost over gossip? No facts. And even when there are facts, we have to be careful with that. Are we trying to solve the problem and deal with it in a way that does not embarrass someone but really helps to restore them and love them and care for them? Boy, the applications of this are multiple in our lives. I hope you can at least see this by now, that judging other people is easy. Oh, it's really fast and easy. But judging rightly, that's difficult. And maybe that's why we don't do it. Because it takes too much work. 
takes too much energy. But it is the only way to be just and to support justice. I want to get a little deeper into this for the next few moments, if you'll indulge me. And that is that even when facts are established, we have to be very, very careful with judging motives. Motives. Why they did what they did is much harder to explain than proving that they did do something. I think motives are the hardest of all things to judge. Why is it then that it seems in society they're the first thing that people judge? The leftist media works overtime to label all of us in a certain way so they can dismiss us. If we disagree with their worldview, then we are labeled by some very terrible labels. Someone says something, and that is true, but the truthfulness to them doesn't matter. Motives have to be quickly and confidently condemned. If you and I don't agree with a certain narrative, what does that make us? Well, one of the worst things that's thrown around all the time is you're a racist. You're a racist because you don't agree with everything that such and such an organization is doing or so-and-so said. But you're thoughtful. You're not a racist. You have some nuanced views and opinions. You're trying to do what is right. You're trying to agree where justice demands it, but disagree where justice does not demand it. But you don't toe the line. So, boom, there you are. You're a racist. That is an attack upon motives. Or you are unwoke. Or if you disagree with leftist ethics, you're a hater. Or a homophobe. Why do they even make that up? Is someone a Christophobe or a Biblephobe? Or a, a, a righteous phobe? They just make up these words as if there's actually a category like that. If you hate something because it's unrighteous, that's not, that's not a phobia. Or you are a xenophobe, or a sexist, or all the above, or clueless. It seems no matter what we say or don't say, our motives are judged. If you disagree with the goals of the organization Black Lives Matter, you're racist. What if you sympathize with the way blacks are treated and you want police reform and you want there to be a good conversation about it, but you can't agree with everything that organization teaches and says because there's a lot of non-Christian stuff that they teach and say. And what are you? Well, people try to silence you and pigeonhole you and label you so that you can't be part of the conversation, part of the solution. Motives are secretly judged and severely judged. It's a terrible thing to be called a racist, but it's thrown around so much these days. What are they really trying to do? They're trying to win the conversation, shut you down, take the moral high ground, as they would see it, show that you're not worth even listening to, your view doesn't even matter, and so just listen to us and we'll tell you how life and society should be. It's purposeful, and we need courage but also self-control to stand against that. You know, I, as far as I know, Jesus Christ knew the heart of every man. I don't, and neither do you. A rush to pin an evil motive on someone you disagree with is itself sinfully presumptuous. Honestly, the judging of motives can be the most damaging of all the kinds that we end up doing to one another. It hurts relationships in church. 
It hurts family members. Parents, be very careful in judging the motives of your children. Even if you've seen them make the same mistake again and again and again, then you see them do such and such, and you think, I've seen this one before. This is a rerun. You know, why'd you do such and such? I know why you did it. Be careful because, you know, they can grow and they can change also. And if you judge their motives, they'll start to lose their their confidence in you as someone that judges righteously in the home. It can, it can happen anywhere. Someone schedules an event the same time you schedule an event. What are you thinking in your head? Ah, they're just trying to draw people away from my event. Do you really know that? Or um, someone forgot to wear a mask around you. It's because they're callous, right? Maybe they just forgot. You receive an email and it seems kind of shorter than usual. Maybe even angry. And so now you're avoiding that person. Why? Because you judged their motives. In larger society, I think what we're witnessing in the USA right now is, is really largely due to two competing systems of judgment, judging ethics, judging what is right and wrong. When people hear the terms liberal and conservative, they think mostly of politics, but often politics is rooted in ideology. And ideology stems from theology. What do I mean? I mean that liberalism as a theology has been around 120 years or so in America. Liberalism, or some as it spills over into society would call it humanism, if that helps you out. Some call it progressivism. is not a benign ideology. In the church, it started basically as an, as an idea that um, in the modern age at least in the church and Christianity, we have to do away with the idea of supernatural things and do away with the idea that God is a, a, an angry God who punishes sin. And the new idea for the Christian church was that God is all love and there is no hell and there was no reason for Jesus to go and die on the cross to pay for our sins because we're not really sinners or at least we're not all that bad. Their view of mankind was man is basically good, And since man is basically good, then man doesn't need a savior to come down from heaven and die on a cross to pay for his sins and satisfy the wrath of God. And certainly there doesn't need to be a resurrection from the dead. And so any of the miracles like the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus were denied in these mainline Protestant denominations. And the thinking was that man is basically good. So what did those churches start doing. I mean, here we do, we get the gospel out so people can be saved and we start Bible studies and we have praise music unto God and we try to help people to understand the doctrines of the Bible so they can get it right. But what happened over time is they lost all their confidence in the Bible. Is a book like any other. It expresses, it expresses sort of Jewish uh, thought as it would evolve through the centuries. It's not inerrant. They may have some good in it, you know, to guide us morally. But what is, what is church members and good people in society, what are they supposed to do? And they got busy with what they called the social gospel, meaning that the real problem in society is not individual people with their sin, because we're basically good. The real problem is the institutions of society. The real problem is government. The real problem is the way uh, Western civilization has made the family or the way we think about sexuality or the way... We want to have law and order or justice. And the liberal church, way back in the 1920s and into the 30s and into the 40s, was already busy changing the entire commission of the church. Let's go out and solve world hunger. Let's stop 
injustice here or there, and their mission completely changed from the great commission that Jesus gave them. And that's why so many people came out of those denominations and they started what later became the evangelical movement. And in some cases, the fundamentalist movement. And that grew and grew. And by the 1970s and 80s, there was an enormous number of evangelicals in our country that no one anticipated because they were busy doing what the old mainline denominations used to do. That theology, that liberal theology that works itself into humanism with people that may deny the existence of God, it's still the same thing. The problem is not in the individual person and his own sin. The problem is in the institutions of society. So we've got to tear them down and change them. And when we do, it, if those that believe in, in God would say, then, you know, the kingdom of God will finally come in. And those who are more atheistic and their humanistic perspective would say, we're finally reaching our utopian society. That's what's happened. A group of people has grown and they've got more and more political power. And to them, politics is more about expressing their religion. They don't see much of a difference between their religion and what they're supposed to do in their religion. They need to grab power in society and change the institutions to fulfill their ideology and their worldview. And that is exactly what they're doing right now to our country. And they're doing it based upon what they believe is right and wrong and their understanding of justice, and it's not biblical. And it's not good. It's not a step forward, even if part of what they're saying is true and correct. So we're basically, we're seeing the results of false teaching in our society that has made it mainstream. And I don't think most people understand that. And I think many are getting caught up in this. And for us that have been around a while and studied theology back into American history and into Europe, this is nothing new. It's just that it's gained more exposure and more power and more adherence in all of the different institutions that guide our country. And it's dangerous. And it is going to bring persecution against the church. It will. It will. And uh, I think we're already seeing it. And um, we'll get into this a little bit more next time, but I also want to talk about God's judgments, how he judges everybody equally and fairly. And I want to talk about how God judges people individually and not by groups. I want to talk about those as the remaining features of, of uh, these attributes of God's judgment. Um, and we'll hopefully, Lord willing, get into that next time. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, our congregation and their love for one another, their unity that they have with each other. Thank you, Lord, that we can discuss these things that are somewhat difficult and still love each other. Help us to grow in discernment, Lord, to be very, very careful with our statements, Lord, for none of us know knows what others have been through and walked through in their shoes. Help us to be patient, be good listeners, understand each other. And thank you for the truth of your word that helps expose things so clearly, Lord, help us to get deeper in our theology, to learn and take advantage of all the courses that are taught here, that we may sharpen ourselves. We're, in need. We're going to need that discernment in the years to come. Pray it. Christ's blessed holy name. Amen.